This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, uh, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast uh, from CAF's Think Tank Giving Thought. This is a podcast where we look at big issues of the day uh, in the news and beyond uh, through the lens of philanthropy. Uh, I'm your host, Rod, and with me is Adam. Hey. So yeah, this week we're doing an episode about philanthropy and education, which is uh, another one of the topics that we uh, crowdsourced via Twitter from uh, some people who actually listen to this podcast. Uh, and we thought, yeah, it was a really good suggestion. So we thought we'd pick that one up. Um, I suppose I'm just going to kick things off by saying, you know, education is a pretty broad term. And actually, in the context of philanthropy and charity, it has a lot of different connotations. So what we're not really talking about here is some of those controversial cases about, you know, the use of education as a charitable purpose to justify things like think tanks, um, although that is something we've covered a bit before, and we almost certainly will again. What we're going to focus in on is education as you would kind of normally understand it so you know kind of schools and universities and the role that philanthropy yeah. has played in supporting them um so adam i think you're going to kick us off with a light-hearted discussion of uh the charitable status of public schools yeah yeah not, not to be controversial at all so the issue is really it's a, it's a singular one and it comes down to public benefit so in the uk public benefit uh has a you know, a, a reasonably narrow set of, uh, of definitions. And one of those is that the benefit should not be closed. So it, it may benefit a, a certain group within uh, the population, but that benefit should not be limited by ability to pay. Now, clearly, that is quite hard to make a case for with public schools because it absolutely does rely on on you being able to pay for it. So... You know, for example, Eton, the uh, the fee-paying school that uh, David Cameron and our current Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson went to is £37,000 per year. And Eton, as a, as a college, gets, you know, relief on business rates and VAT. Um, so it's, you know, it's subsidised by taxpayers' money, essentially. Um, it's It gets full charitable status. Um, and I suppose, uh, just to quickly, Adam, just uh, suddenly occurred to me there might be some confusion amongst any listeners in the US here. When we say public schools in the UK context, what that actually is, is a particular class of private fee-paying schools. Because I know God, public yeah. schools in America, we're referring to to schools that are provided by the state. It's, it's a confusing usage, but yeah. that, that's what we're talking about. I mean, often... often uh, here in in the UK, we will kind of bark at hearing Americanisms, and we we, mm. we think that what we think that our language tends to make much more sense. But to be fair, this is an instance where the, the, <laughs> yeah, the name really public doesn't. school makes absolutely zero sense. It's, it does the opposite of that. Um, yeah, but yeah, so it's um, the, we we tend to get over this problem um, in, by acknowledging the fact. The very real fact that public schools do provide some uh, beneficial services that are, that are not limited to those that can afford the fees. Uh, I, to some extent, they always have done. Uh, many schools um, have been happy to uh, allow their property to be accessed by others. 
uh, and some of their services. But also they will have subsidies, subsidised rates, or, or even take on uh, gifted uh, children from poorer backgrounds on, on scholarships. And therefore they're providing a you know, public benefit that way. Um, after the 2011 Charities Act, uh, there was a real attempt by government to make sure that um, that we were getting more out of these schools uh, by giving them charitable status. Um, and as such, they introduced the, the idea that it was mandatory that they would try and seek a, a wider benefit and that the benefit for uh, the rest of society would be more than a token benefit, I think is the words that we used. So that's... That's where we've got to today, this like slightly uncomfortable position that leaves it up to, to some extent, up to schools themselves to kind of determine where that benefit starts and ends. And so you get the slightly kind of, you get some excellent practices in some schools and some slightly dodgy practices in others. So, uh, the, you know, there was a story in the paper that um, St. Paul's School in London uh, was... Uh, championing the work that it was doing with uh, allowing uh, of getting disadvantaged children into its school but then it did define disadvantaged as coming from families with a household income of less than 120,000 pounds so what's that about 160,000 US dollars which is uh, a fairly uh, generous <laughs> it, it seems it seems reasonably far from the breadline it has to be <laughs> yeah. has to be said um, so yeah, I, I I bring up all these these uh, these issues really. I mean, not not necessarily to criticise the fact that um, public schools can uh, receive charitable status. As I said, some make a great case for it, others uh, not so much, and it's a debate that will continue to rage in this country. But what I really wanted to get my head around is how we got here, um, and so perhaps Rod, you can fill us in a bit about the some of the history around this yeah fine and as ever when you actually dig into the history of anything to do with charity or philanthropy it's mostly just to do with a series of kind of accidents and oversights rather than anything particularly <laughs> planned i mean i think you know my my understanding of it really having um looked into this when i was um uh, doing my book is that essentially you know the starting point of the modern definition of a charitable purpose um is the 1601 uh statute of charitable uses or the the preamble to it more specifically although it has to be said it didn't actually outline charitable purposes but I mean, let's not get into that right now um but basically it kind of outlined a, a series of things that were the kind of the sorts of things that charitable trusts might be uh might kind of acceptably look at and it's a list that's mostly to do with uh, kind of poverty-related causes, although there is also like preservation of bridges because this was 1601. Um, but uh, one thing, the, the one mention of education in that document uh, is not to say that it's specifically a charitable purpose. It was just to make an exception, saying that the the charity commissioners, who were the sort of the individuals empowered by this new law to make judgments in the, these sorts of cases, um, their powers didn't imply didn't apply to the endowments owned by the colleges of Oxford and Cambridge University. Uh, which effectively were the higher education section at the time and had been for at least, you know, 300 years by that point. Uh, so they basically got an exemption because they were already there. Um, and then it was only, the, there was a famous court case called the Pemsel case in 1891, um, which was basically laid the groundwork for the kind of modern definition of charitable uses. And the judge in that outlined these sort of four heads of charity, which are the kind of groupings under which these things fit. Uh, and one of those was the advancement of education. And so 
higher education and and you know public schools and things all fit under that. So essentially, and and it's worth saying that definition was extremely broad. So that's why we still have the situation, firstly, where public schools are allowed to maintain their charitable status, largely because they kind of predate the introduction of the idea of a charitable uh, purpose, and also that the the notion of educational uh, purpose uh, in charitable law is pretty broad, and that's why you know think tanks and other organisations are able to use uh, use that definition to get themselves charitable uh, status. I think that's the combination of those two things is basically why we find ourselves in the situation that we're in. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to continue to wrestle with this for for a while. Uh, and it, you know, it seems there's. I th- would you say there's a growing consensus? There's certainly been noises from within the Conservative Party that this needs to be addressed to some degree, and you would have thought they would be, well, historically they've been more on the supportive side of this argument. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, an issue that has refused to go away from kind of mainstream politics over here. And I know that the Green Party in the UK had it as one of their manifesto pledges in the last election. It's kind of you know their policy. Yeah. Uh, and I and I think you know the the Labour Party hasn't quite come out and said that, but the whenever the question comes up, they're obviously on that side of the fence. Uh, sooner or later, you know, it, it's going to come back round again. Whether it gets resolved at that point, I don't know, but it, it's not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. No, I mean, the, the polling on, on the subjects of charitable status mm. for public schools is consistently damning, isn't it? But then if we start judging uh, all these kind of questions on the instincts of the public in spot polls, we might be in a bit of trouble. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, that's very, very true, certainly when it comes to acceptable charitable purposes. <laughs> so what's up in the next section rod uh so in the next section i think we're going to uh, fly across the atlantic and and have a look at uh, a particularly interesting case um around kind of philanthropic support for a particular model of schools charter schools in the u.s and why that's proved quite controversial yeah so as we said in this section we're going to have a quick look at the the situation in the u.s around uh support for charter schools um now, without going into too much detail, charter schools uh, for UK listeners are essentially a bit like the free school model. So it's kind of a model of schools where local businesses or voluntary groups or religious organisations are able to set up new schools in an area that has kind of existing public schools to offer increased choice and competition. And quite often they're kind of given more freedom than certainly public schools would over curriculum matters and you know the way in which they... Um, they teach subjects um, and, you know, both in the US and here in the UK with free schools, this has proven controversial for a number of reasons, some of them to do with, you know, the individual uh, organisations in particular cases that are running these schools and the way they choose to do them, particularly around kind of faith based organisations. But but the, what we want to focus in on is in the US, there's been a lot of controversy because charter schools have become um one of the the things much loved by philanthropists who want to try and address issues with public education over there so uh pretty famously um mark zuckerberg one of his first big plays in philanthropy which well spoiler alert really didn't pan out very well um was a 100 million pound donation uh in newark um to try and support uh the charter school movement there and this this was done in collaboration with the mayor at the time Cory Booker who was a very kind of pro philanthropy mayor and a couple of other um philanthropists 
Um, but it, it immediately received um, a kind of quite a big backlash, both from people in the education system and the public. Uh, not helped, it has to be said, by the fact that the first thing anybody in the education system there knew of it was when it was announced on the Oprah Winfrey show, which <laughs> you know is probably not the best way to make major policy announcements that affect people's lives. Um, but but also there was a kind of concern that this represented one of the most acute cases of the sort of overweening power of philanthropy to um, to kind of subvert the direction of public policy because. By ploughing so much money into this particular model of schools, even if it was for good intentions and because Zuckerberg and others thought that this was really you know, a good way to shake up the system and be disruptive, what they did was inevitably skew the direction of other funding away from yeah. uh, improving and supporting public schools and towards these charter schools. And you know, immediately, yes, you know, there's the arguments about choice and competition, but as ever when you have a uh, kind of marketization of services that have a welfare element, there were all the standard sorts of issues about, you know, those that actually get the benefit of the choice and competition are the middle classes and those with mm -hmm. sharp elbows who are able to navigate the system. And the people who are not only not helped by it, but actively find their lives made worse are the very people that you should be wanting to help. So yeah. those who are kind of most socially disadvantaged and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, th this situation has rumbled on and on. The, the Newark uh, example kind of blew up um, and, you know, books have been written about it and this sort of thing. And Zuckerberg has quite publicly said since, you know, I kind of got that wrong. I, I didn't understand it. I came in as thinking I knew best. And, you know, in fairness to him, has made that mere culpa. And, and since then, his philanthropy, I think, has been that bit more humble. But uh, it definitely... It's an expensive lesson, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is a very, very expensive lesson. Although, actually, you know... Not sure 100 million qualifies as uh, that expensive in the context of yeah. Zuckerberg's <laughs> personal wealth. Um, but I suppose it, it's something that's become more acute um, uh, under the presidency of Donald Trump because he installed Betsy DeVos very controversially as the Secretary of State for Education. Mm. And she herself was uh, a very significant philanthropic funder of charter schools uh, around the country and you know has subsequently used her political role to to push that model even further so again it kind of raises that concern about uh philanthropic philanthropic power in the first place but then philanthropic power turning into actual kind of democratically elected power education is just a perfect storm isn't it for for controversy and philanthropy um partly because it's so reliant on huge resources um and it's just serially in pretty much every country to some degree underfunded. Um, it also very, very much lends itself to uh, the kind of perpetuating of the education uh, levels and, uh, and, and wealth of uh, the parent generation. And there doesn't seem to be an effective way of avoiding that. Throw into that people trying to address it who have inevitably been the benefactors of a of often from a great education themselves and the whole thing just gets very political very quickly doesn't it yeah and i think it's it quite often is an example of the the hubris uh, of philanthropy uh particularly i think you know amongst the new generation of kind of tech uh philanthropists who see themselves as as, as disruptors because it's known that you know systems of public education in most places around the world 
they're you know, huge and monolithic and extremely complex. And these yeah. people come to it with the belief that, you know, what that what's really required is them to come in with radical you know, ideas and shake things up. And that actually all the people working in that system must be part of the problem and they don't need to be consulted. And that usually ends very poorly. There's been a number of different uh, initiatives in the developing world recently where some philanthropic, but some also private sector companies are competing in this market to offer essentially tech solutions to education in the developing world where the teachers literally read from a script off an iPad and Mm. the whole thing is sort of automated remotely uh, with all the lesson plans and stuff. Um, It's really controversial. You hear similar stuff uh, again around you know the rise of these massive open online courses, these MOOCs, um, which which mm. are you know are great and potentially have the uh, the capacity to to open up kind of top draw uh, university level education for the first time to people all, all around the world, which you know could could be absolutely uh, incredible. But again, it's you know it's an example of that sort of tech-led solution to an extremely long-standing and complex social problem that I think, you know, sometimes there's there's a real danger of, uh, of thinking that you've that you've cracked these nuts when actually what you've done is just sort of refuse to understand the, the complexity of the problem at hand. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, uh, in, in our final section, uh, we're going to be looking at universities, I think, aren't we, Rod? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So yeah, in this third and final section, we're just going to have a, a brief chat about the um, the topic of uh, philanthropy and kind of universities. So I suppose it's worth saying that there is a, an extremely long-standing relationship between the two. I mean, here in the UK, um, certainly most of the the red brick universities, which is the kind of older universities that aren't Oxford and Cambridge, that many of which came about during uh, the Industrial Revolution, were at least in part founded uh, off the back of money from um, industrialists and in some unfortunate instances slavers um, uh, who gave large endowments to set up those institutions to kind of give the urban populace uh, the opportunity to get um, uh, top level education uh, particularly focusing on kind of technical education and then later the the sort of polytechnic movement which was opening up higher level education even further was also largely founded by philanthropy um, and it's probably pretty well known that in the US, uh, you know, philanthropy's always been very strongly linked with higher education uh, and still is. Um, so there's a very strong tradition of uh, alumni giving in the US. And many of the big name universities over there have absolutely enormous endowments. So Harvard, Princeton, uh, Stanford, all these institutions um Quite regularly, their charitable endowments link, uh, get listed amongst the the top biggest um, kind of investment uh, funds in the US, and they have you know billions and billions of dollars to be working with. Um, I suppose what's interesting, in a way, from here in the UK, is the extent to which, uh, in the last few years, the um, the the culture of philanthropic giving to UK universities has started to ramp up and to kind of try and mirror some of those um those traditions in in the US system yeah. so there's been a lot more focus on alumni giving and what there's also very much been uh more of is uh is big major donations to UK universities which in in the past 
there perhaps weren't. And the situation in the UK is incredibly complicated historically. It's, you know, for a long time, it was state funded and, you know, people went to university for free and that has changed relatively recently and all that sort of stuff. But one interesting um, stat I noticed uh, just having a bit of a read round on this is that philanthropic funding for higher education in the UK passed £1 billion for the first time in 2015-16. Worth saying that's still pretty small compared to the US situation. I'm I'm just reading Harvard University got a donation from Gerald Chan, a Chinese, uh, well, yeah, businessman from Hong Kong of $350 million. (laughs) Yeah, so that's pretty big. And and the overall amount in the US in, in a comparable period, so I think 2015, was £31 billion yeah. uh, pounds worth of donations. But but there are some big examples here in the UK. So really big ones, actually. Some, some particularly well-known ones. Um, there's Leonard Blavatnik, um, who is, I think, a Ukrainian uh, oligarch, um, former oligarch, uh, gave £75 million pounds to the University of Oxford to set up a school oh, wow. of government. Uh, similarly, Michael Moritz, who's a uh, originally Welsh but uh, subsequently kind of Silicon Valley entrepreneur, gave another seventy-five million to Oxford. Um, but it's interesting, also, it's not just Oxford and Cambridge anymore. Uh, you know, they've had this sort of thing going on for a while. But increasingly, it is smaller universities that are starting to get these big donations. So uh, there was a Hong Kong businessman called Dixon Poon who gave twenty million pounds to King's College London. Uh, Sir James Dyson gave twelve million to Imperial College. Uh, recently, there was a guy called Jimmy Mayer, I think, gave uh, nearly three million to Leicester, uh, and uh, Hugh Sloan, who's a hedge fund manager, gave ten million pounds to Bristol University. So, there's definitely starting to be more of a culture of these, you know, really significant, chunky donations to UK universities. It's interesting, though, isn't it, um, that that giving to universities seems to be an area in which structural philanthropy that's intended to sort of strategically address shortcomings and weaknesses in, in a system just doesn't seem to apply in philanthropy to higher education. In fact, it seems to run reverse. So the area of greatest need where you could have the greatest impact would be to to donate to the institutions that are most in need of, in, most in need of money, where the, the gains will be the greatest. Whereas what we seem, what we always get uh, very much so, is the largest donations go to the most established institutions where you face more of an issue of kind of lower returns because of the gains getting more marginal, the more wealthy those institutions become. Uh, institutions that are often sat on multi-billion dollar endowments to start with. It's uh, it's a really interesting area of philanthropy in that uh, the, the kind of prevailing logic of philanthropy doesn't apply in the in the same way. No, I think I think that's right. But I suppose you know there's there's the practical side of it, which is that the the bigger universities probably have put more money into developing their fundraising infrastructure, so that you know they're better yeah. at asking. Um, and that's certainly true. From in terms of alumni, they quite often have you know significantly higher average salaries for people completing mm-hmm. uh, degrees there, so they're more likely to track those donations back. But but I suppose the other thing on what you're saying that that just struck me is it kind of depends what what you the purpose of giving to higher education is from your point of view as a donor because if it is just to support universities then um you know yes giving to those that have got the the fewest resources makes sense but actually if what you're trying to do is to um 
achieve something in terms of, say, research in a particular yeah. area, well, you want to give to the, the best research institution. Yeah. If, on the other hand, what you want to do is solve the problem, say, of something like access, which, uh, say, Michael Moritz, when he gave 75 million to Oxford, that was specifically to try and help poorer students go to, to university there. Um, then, you know, that, that it depends, you know, it depends whether you think that the best thing to do there is to help poor people go uh, to Oxford uh, or whether you think it's better to help other universities that have less resource. Um, yeah. And that's the thing. There's all these kind of different motivations and, and exactly. strategies at play. Exactly, you might be you might not be motivated by education uh, at all. You may be motivated much more so by research and by a, a specific targeted cause area. You know, mm. maybe that you're looking at cancer research, or you know, it could be yeah. many different areas that you're that you're looking at. Equally, yeah. it could be that you just like your name put above uh, a renowned institution. So, well, well, <laughs> yeah, that that's another important part of it. I think. Okay, well, on that cynical bombshell, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we'd better draw this to an end. Um, so all that's left to be said is if you've got any questions or suggestions, please drop us a line at givingthought at Uh Check out all the content that we refer to in the show notes for this episode. And yeah, please tell everybody to subscribe to the podcast and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.